Let's open our Bibles to the book of Zechariah. I was mentioning to the guys yesterday in men's prayer, as we started the book of Revelation, I thought, oh, this is interesting, because on Sunday morning we're finishing up the Old Testament. Uh, on men's prayer we're finishing up the New Testament. I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, Zechariah chapter 11, I've entitled the message this morning, I am the potter and, and you are the clay. Chapter 11, verse 12, or Paul read for us earlier. And then I said to them, if it's agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that pricely price they set on me. And so I took the 30 pieces of silver threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And then I cut in two my other staff bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said to me, Next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For I indeed will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear the hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall be completely withered, and his right hand shall be totally blinded. Um, let's back up. Some of you watching live stream or maybe you're visiting the church this morning. We're finishing up Zechariah. But I'm going to do a quick overview so we can get a feel um, just how much uh, Zechariah talks about the first and second coming of the Lord, the great tribulation, the millennial reign. We read about the millennium. I don't know if I picked it up in, in the psalm this morning. Psalm 72 is really about the kingdom age when the Lord will reign. But Zechariah, if you're taking notes, and I hope some of you do, is broken up into three sections. Chapter 1 through 6 is during the time when they came back from Babylon, and they were discouraged. The place was a mess. It was in ruins. So Zechariah and Zerubbabel and Haggai are given the task of encouragement so this was during the building project, chapters 1 through 6, Zechariah is prophesying during this time when they were still building the temple. Then in chapters 7 and 8, um, it's a break, and it gives us, in chapter 7, um, the Lord rebukes them and corrects them for their hypocrisy and basically tells them, you guys you didn't have to go to the woodshed. You should have listened. If you would have listened to Jeremiah, you would have never went into captivity. None of this would have had to happen. And now they come back, and the place is in ruins, and they're discouraged. And um, that's chapter 7. You end chapter 7, and it stings. I mean, they got corrected in it. It was stinging. But then you go to chapter 8, and it's all about the millennium. Even though... You did this, and you were hypocritical, and you didn't. You worshipped everything but me. He said, it doesn't matter. Um, I'm still going to keep my promise about the kingdom. So 
chapter 7 and 8 are a little bit different because when you get to the third section of the book of Zechariah, chapters 9 through 14, that's broken up into two sections, 9, 10, and 11, which we're going to do this morning, and then uh, 12, 13, and 14 next Sunday, and we'll be finishing up uh, Zechariah next uh, Sunday morning. So 9 through 14 deal with the first and the second coming of uh, the Lord. So far from Zechariah's prophecies about Jesus and prophecies, they are fulfilled in the New Testament. Some we're going to see this morning in Matthew, um, but most of it actually is going to be fulfilled in the book of Revelation. The whole book of Zechariah is prophetic. Uh, he's um, killing two birds with one stone is a good way to say it. He's ministering to the people, uh, encouraging them on one hand, but then at the same time, he's prophesying about what is going to be, and in the case this morning, in greater detail, especially I'll tease you a little bit with this verse 17 here, um, the right eye against the worthless shepherd being blinded and his, and his arm being withered, what's that about? Well, that's all future yet, and we'll get into that when we get there. But let me just quickly um, remind you, chapter 1 talks about four different horsemen, and it gives us the colors. lines up identically with Revelation chapter 6, and we have the four horsemen, um, starting with the Antichrist in verse 1. Zechariah chapter 2 is all about the kingdom age that's coming. Um, Chapters 3 and 6, both together, uh, were introduced to the branch. And if you've been studying, you notice it was always in capital letters. And it is a reference to Jesus. And in chapter 6, he tells us that the branch is going to be the one who is going to oversee the building of of the millennial temple. Now there's two more temples to come. One during the tribulation, we call that the tribulation temple. That's going to be destroyed. And it's going to be replaced, according to Zechariah 6, by the branch. And this ties into the book of Ezekiel's chapters 40 through 44. Unbelievable detail and measurements and just how precise the thousand year millennial temple will be. Then in chapter 4, we're introduced to the two olive branches and the seven golden lampstands. And um, uh, it's a prophecy fulfilled in Revelation 11, where it says the two witnesses, they are the two olive trees standing before the Lord of the whole earth. And all of a sudden, you begin to catch this pattern that you can only wrap your head around if you teach through a whole book. In this case, Zechariah. But then we're going to jump into Malachi, and he's going to tie it into the book of Zechariah. All right. Chapter 4 is the two witnesses fulfilled in Revelation 11. Chapter 5 was a study that we did of a future economic system. Um, The woman in the basket, wickedness. There's a place being prepared for her in Shinar. That's where Babylon started. All occultic religion had its roots with Nimrod and Babylon. And chapter 5 of Zechariah said there's a place there being prepared for judgment. And um, uh, that was in chapter 5. 
It's fulfilled in Revelation chapter 18. It has to be a port city. It has to be the center of the world's commerce. This will be after uh, the rapture of the church. Um, Then we go to chapters um, 7, which I told you was a chapter about rebuke for their hypocrisy. And chapter 8, I want to go back in this one and pull out a verse because of an article I read across this week. Go to chapter 8 and um, verse 23. Chapter 8 is a... um, um, a chapter for encouragement about bringing back um, the people a second time. And verse 23 is interesting because uh, uh, verse 10 says the people will come from many cities from around the world. And verse 23, they, the people will say to one another, thus says the Lord of hosts in those days, 10 men from every language of the nations will grasp the sleeve of a Jew a Jewish man, and saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Where can I find a Jew? i got to latch on to him because God's with him. The article that I read across this week is from Barry Siegel. Um, I've met Barry. Uh, he has a TV program and a ministry uh, to the uh, Jewish people that are migrating to Israel. He has a great big storage house and uh, it's, there's people just come with the clothes on their back. So his ministry is to provide food and shelter. And I'm quoting, I get his, I get his um, daily newsletter, and this was out this week. And it has to do with how Jews are being treated in Europe right now. It says, it's an internet survey, one in four Jews in Europe hides his Jewishness. And I'll just read the article. The World Zion... Zionist organization has conducted a comprehensive survey in recent months ahead of the International Day to Combat Anti-Semitism, which will take place on uh, January 27th, 2017. So that would be exactly one year ago that this survey was taken. Uh, The comprehensive survey included 1,363 Jewish people who did not reside in Israel, Among other questions, respondents were asked how safely they felt about moving around with visible symbols, such as a a kippah, the hat they have on their head, or a star of David, or even using their Jewish names. In other words, if you're Goldberg, you would change it to um, a French name, Deauville, or Deauville, however you want to say it. That's what Bob Dylan did. Bob Dylan is not Bob Dylan. He changed his name because he's Jewish. It's Bobby Zimmerman. You can call me Zimmy. I think he's got one of his songs or whatever. You can call me Ray. You can call me Watchman. But it's not Bob Dylan. It's Bobby Zimmerman. Why did he do that? Because of the, the stigma that goes along with being Jewish. Um, in Europe today, uh, the survey revealed that one out of every two Jews in Europe and one out of every four Jews in the world feels they need to conceal his Jewishness and avoid the most basic Jewish symbols. 30% of those who responded that they felt safe in their area of residence testified that they did not feel confident about walking around with Jewish symbols. In addition, respondents were asked to provide their opinion on the UN resolution 
not to recognize that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. 72% said they believed it was an anti-Semitic resolution, while 13% considered it legitimate decision. One source said the worrisome result of the survey proved once again that anti-Semitism has not disappeared from the world and that all necessary measures must be taken into consideration in order to eradicate it. End of quote from Barry Siegel. My point is simple. Today, anti-Semitism is alive and well, and we see the focus of, of the world coming to Jerusalem. When we get to chapter 12, um, it says Jerusalem is going to become a cup of trembling. And because of what <laughs> Trump just did by saying we are going to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you know, I've, I've quoted it several times. Er- Erdogan, the president of Turkey, uh, said that's the red line. You guys just crossed it. And now the Jews have to die. And now we're talking a world leader making a, a, a statement like that. Well, that's then. But during the millennium, what does it tell us? Just the opposite. Anti-Semitism now. But in those days, ten men will say, hey, are you a Jew? Can I go with you? Because I heard that God is with you. So all that is going to be flip-flopped and turned around but not until Israel goes to some difficult times. All right, made my point there in chapter 8, chapters 9 through 11. uh, They'll deal with the prophetic aspects which are connected uh, with the first coming of the Lord. 9, 10, and 11. We'll see that um, um, we made reference to to several in chapter 9. I'll come back to it. And then in chapters 12 through 14, the second coming of the Messiah. Um, God has a plan and a purpose uh, for the coming of the Messiah. We'll see the two comings of the Messiah. Coming first, the first time as a Savior, and coming the second time as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Praise the Lord. Good place for an amen. Uh, His coming, the first time, has the cross in view. When the Lord said he was going to the cross, Peter rebuked him, said, far be it from me, not while I'm around you, don't have to worry about that, Lord. And the Lord turned around and said, get behind me, Satan. You, you care about the things of man, not the things of God. Well, what are the things of God? Going to the cross. For this purpose was I born. And Peter, you're not going to get in my way. Get behind me. So he puts Peter in his place. And um, as we look At chapter 9, I won't get into a lot of detail here, but quickly the first eight verses deal with Alexander the Great. Um, He conquered the known world by the time he was 33 years old. Basically, these scriptures deal with the the ancient enemy of Israel, the Philistines. And in these um, chapters here that names uh, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, uh, Ashkelon, and these cities were all conquered by Alexander the Great, verses 1 through 8. Um, after Alexander was done with them, the Philistine nation was brought to an end, never emerged as a nation again. There is no such thing as a Philistine. They were dispersed after Alexander got through with them. 
And then to show you how this weaves in and out of time. Verse 9 of chapter uh, 9 is is, uh, Jesus riding the donkey uh, into Jerusalem. And that was fulfilled on Palm Sunday, April 6, 32 A.D. But it's prophesied here in verse 9 that when Jesus comes, he's going to come humbly and lowly, riding on a Gulf Stream jet. (laughs) Only those who were here on Wednesday night got that joke. (laughs) Kenneth Copeland just bought himself a Gulf Stream. And now he wants 17 million more dollars so he can have a hangar to put in it. Fernando, where were you when I needed you? (laughs) Fernando works out there. And um, for those of you who don't know, that's the cream of the crop when it comes to luxury commercial, not commercial, but... Um, uh, jets and uh, Kenneth Copeland just bought one what a contrast huh how did Jesus decide to come riding in Gulfstream nah a little donkey humble he's coming to you having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey a colt the foal of a donkey that's the prophecy it was fulfilled by Jesus on the only day that he would allow people to worship him and then, be, be, what we want to notice, between 9 and 10, there's a gap. And I want to point this out because I want, there's going to be a gap in our study this morning when we get to our text. Are there gaps? Yeah, there's a gap of 2,000 years between verse 9 and verse 10. Verse 10 was part of our psalm that we read this morning. Remember, it says he will reign from sea to sea. That could only be during the millennium. So we read in verse 10, his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. So, verse 9, 32 A.D., um, 2,000-year gap, Jesus reigning during the kingdom age. And now we have chapter 10. The whole chapter is about regathering the people a second time. Well, when was the first time? Well, we're right in the middle of it right now. About 50,000 people came back from Babylon, and they're involved with rebuilding the temple. And they're coming back because they were dispersed by Nebuchadnezzar. And that's the first time. It's right around 520 B.C., during Zechariah's time. But then it says, um, chapter 10 is about regathering the Jews back in the last days. Um, Jesus foretold this. In Luke 19, he said, because you did not know the time of your coming, you're going to be encircled by your enemies, the Romans. They're going to destroy the the temple and the city. Not one stone is going to be left upon another because you did not know the time of my coming. I mean, the whole reason that Jerusalem was destroyed and that they were dispersed is because they didn't know Bible prophecy. That's exactly what I'm saying. And um, it's just a fact of history that in 70 AD, the 10th Roman Legion under Titus came down and did exactly that. And they've been the wandering Jew for the last 2,000 years. But it says in Isaiah chapter 11, it will come to pass in that day that the Lord will set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathans, from Cush, from Elam, from Sinar, from Hamath, and the islands of the sea. When they came back the first time, it was just from Babylon. This is a worldwide 
um, coming back to the land of Israel. Verse 12, he will set up a banner for the nations and he will assemble the, the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the world. And gang, we're watching that happen right before our eyes. Since 1900, uh, with the Zionist movement, um, we saw the kibbutzes little by little starting to grow in Israel. And now um, there's no more room. The big conflict in the Middle East today is uh, housing for all the Jews that are coming to Israel. Well, that finally brings us to our text, a little bit of a, a reminder of the flow of the book of Zechariah. As we look at chapter 11, uh, the first uh, 11 verses deal with the time to come in Israel's future. So Zechariah is telling the people, all right, before the kingdom can come, you still have some hard days ahead. Next, after next week, we're going to be starting the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament, last prophet to speak. And then God doesn't speak for 400 years. There's 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But there's a lot that went on. We have um, one of Alexander the Great's general, a guy named Antioch, Antioch Epiphanes. He goes in, he hates the Jewish people, He's, he goes to the temple, defiles it, and puts a swine up in the Holy of Holies, and it's a type of the abomination of desolation that the Antichrist is going to do. But that happened about 164, and that's um, the Jewish people were so incensed that the temple had been defiled in such a way, this is where um, the Maccabean revolt came in. And they were fighting against one of Alexander the Great's generals from the Assyrian area. And uh, then will come the Romans. Um, there's a prophecy that says that the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. That's an interesting verse. The scepter, what does that mean? Well, when you have a scepter, you have authority. They had authority over capital judgment, but not during the time that Jesus was here. The Jews, the Pharisees, wanted to kill him, but they had to get permission. From who? Pilate. Rome was in charge. And so the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh, a reference to Jesus, until he comes. And um, so we, we find that verses, chapter 11, we... Um, uh, went through a verse by verse on Wednesday. And that brings us to verse 11, talking about the dark time during the Maccabean revolt, during the occupation of the Romans. But then, notice, all of a sudden, here's our text. So everything that we've gone so far is back and forth uh, in history. And now we come to our text that I read uh, earlier. Uh, this chapter concludes the division of the burdens, which hinges on the first coming of Christ. It brings us to the Roman period of the Maccabees before, and that was a very, very dark period. Now, in our text, this morning we'll see two more prophecies from Zechariah fulfilled in the New Testament. Jesus, in verses 12 through 13, uh, is rejected by Israel, but what's going to happen is, even though he was rejected, 
Israel is going to accept a counterfeit Jesus Christ. He's going to be called the, we call him the Antichrist. Um, They'll reject Jesus. They'll eventually accept the Antichrist. And how he would deceive the whole world. That's the Antichrist. So let's read. We finally made it back to our text. But I just want to read verses 12 and 13. Verse 12. Then I said to them, if it's agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, I want you to throw it to the potter, that pricely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord through the potter. All right, let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. And Paul was absolutely right. That is just one of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven other (laughs) cross-references. So Matthew chapter 26, for starters, looking at verses um, 14 and 15. The Lord told the disciples, tonight one of you is going to betray me. And they all began to say, is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? And the Lord actually told them, Peter's sitting at the far end of the table, and and John has his shoulder on Jesus, and um, Judas was on the right-hand side. That would have been a place of honor. And (laughs) I can just see Peter, John, 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 (laughs) ask the Lord who it is. Because everybody going around the table says, is it me, is it me, is it me? Any one of us. Here's the here's sad fact of the matter. It could have been me. It could have been you. And um, Peter denied, you know. Peter said, I'll never deny you. Not me. All these other guys, they'll flake out. I can understand that. But you're talking to Rocky here. And I'm not going to let you down. But he's saying, Lord, who is it, who is it? And the Lord tells John. He says, it's the one I'm going to dip my... Um, taco chip in and into the salsa and uh, when I give it to that's him takes the, the dip gives it to Judas and John had to go wow and Peter still doesn't get this but it was Judas and he looks at Judas and he said what you do do quickly and he got up and left and uh, they thought well he's you know he's got he's, he's takes care of the money so he's probably Lord told him to go buy something or something. No, he was on his way, and the Lord knew he would be betrayed. He told him ahead of time, and it was it was Judas. So when we read verse fourteen here of twenty six, then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests, and he said, "What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you?" And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Well, Dwight, that could just be a coincidence from Zechariah. How do we know that Jeremiah or Zechariah, that was really a prophecy fulfilled? Because of Matthew 27, verses 3 to 10. So if you'll just turn the page to Matthew 27. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chiefs and the elders. So he took the money, then he gets convicted, now he's bringing it back. 
saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? We don't care. You see to it. And so he took it and says, well, I don't want it. And he throws it, the pieces of silver, into the temple and departed and went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful to put them back into the treasury because it's the price of blood. And they took counsel and they bought with it the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord had directed. Now, I'm going to come back to this for personal application. But let's go back in the meantime to chapter 14, uh, chapter 11, verse 14. And there's one more prophecy here before I can make my application. So let's look at verse 14. It says, Then I will cut in two my other staff, bonds, that I might break the brotherhood between Israel and Judah. Now this one verse is an important verse because of what people have done with it. The uh, the chopping of the second staff indicates the complete severance of a relationship between the shepherd and Israel, his flock. It is as if God is saying, when you sold me, when you turned me over into the Romans, uh, they will soon, uh, to the hands of the Gentiles, to be crucified. I broke my covenant. Now, I'm going to come back to that. There's a covenant here, and he says, I'm going to break it. I have to finish reading, and I'll come back and explain that. Titus, the Roman, will soon come here, and he will be scattered. You will be scattered throughout the world. The Messiah came, the nation rejected him, and the Jewish people are still scattered throughout the world today. All right. This one verse where it says, I will break my covenant. Now, Reformed theology is the teaching that because um, Jesus was crucified and betrayed by his own people, that because of that, God rejected them. They'll point, they'll get a point right to this verse here. See? He broke his covenant with Israel. Now, if you're here on Wednesday, we went into a little depth and explained the difference between an unconditional covenant and a, a covenant that is conditional. So the unconditional covenant, we've read about over and over and over and over again, that God has promised to David a kingdom and the kingdom age. And we pray for it all the time. Good place for an amen. amen. That's why we're living. We're waiting for this kingdom. It's an unconditional covenant predicated on God himself. Nothing can break it. And uh, Paul brings this issue up. For those of you who want to dive more into this, here's your chapters. Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 1, has God forsaken his people? Certainly not. He hasn't forsaken me. I'm a Jew. And he explains that this was all part of God's plan so that he could open up the gospel to the rest of the world, to a Gentile named Cornelius. And he got saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it blew the Jew's mind. A Jew, 
a Gentile, just got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. Unbelievable. And so we find that I have to stop here, and when people talk about um, Roman Catholicism believes in replacement theology, and um, um, a lot of Protestants believe that God is through with the Jewish people. You Christ killers, you. There's the anti-Semitism. And, um, but this was predicated on a conditional covenant and um, not an unconditional one. And so verse 14 is a very, very important verse. And there's also a gap now. That's why I wanted to show you a gap earlier. Between verses 14 and 15, it now is going to talk about the foolish shepherd. Now, this is the second prophecy that's going to be fulfilled. The first one has already been fulfilled. Judas Iscariot did that, and that was verses 12 and 13. Now, in verses 15 and 16, here is another prophecy that is yet future. And it says, And then the Lord said to me, Next, take up for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that are still, that are still, that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear the hooves in pieces. Let's just um, uh, stop there. 15 and 16 is now we're talking about the time of the tribulation period. I believe when the rapture of the church takes place, so blessed hope for the church. And when that happens, we enter into a seven-year period of time called the tribulation. And uh, when that happens, um, we have coming out in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, I will read it. And I looked to behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out to conquer and to conquer. This is a a reference of um, the very opening of the, the first seal in the book of Revelation. It's about the Antichrist, and it's about that period of time that we call the Great Tribulation Period. 15 and 16 was also foretold by Daniel. Again, if you're taking notes, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, puts it this way. Then he, the he there is a reference to the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one week. And the covenant with many is Israel. The one week is seven years. But in the middle of the week, he changes his mind. He will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. In order to bring an end to sacrifice and offering during the tribulation, you have to have a temple. Second Thessalonians 2, Paul says, when you see the man of sin, the son of perdition, go into the temple, showing himself that he is God. So Paul talks about it. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, run. And so here, the rest of it, and on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. All right, um, so 15 and 16 of Zechariah 
is called the worthless shepherd. In contrast to the real shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to return at the end of that seven-year period of time. All right, let's go to verse 17, the last verse of our text. And the Lord says, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm, and against his right eye his arm shall be completely withered, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Let's open our Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you. And I sure hope all of you bring your your Bibles to church because people don't do that anymore. But I want everybody here to bring your Bible to church. Uh, I want everybody here to bring your Bible to church. I want everybody here to bring your Bible to church. J. Verda McGee said, if you say something enough times, they'll finally get what you're trying to say. You need to bring your Bible to church. There you go. That's what I like to see. Better yet, I like to hear those pages turning. Gang, this is the thing that's going to make sense about the days that we're living in. And unless you know this book and know it good, you're going to stumble. But Jesus said he gave the parable of the builder. He says, those who hear my words and do them, I'll liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. Storms came, floods came, house stood. Why? Because the, the, the word of God was the rock. But he who hears my words and doesn't do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Same storms came, and uh, the house didn't stand because it was built on sand instead of something solid. Unless you really have this tucked away in here, and you really know it, um, we're no different than anybody else. We're going to have difficult times. I was talking to Carol Botts yesterday on the phone, and she's sort of in a way what can happen next to Greg type thing. And um, we're not exempt from crossing the street and possibly getting hit by a car. It could happen to any one of us. And the difference is that as we talked, you know, there was a stability in Carol's voice that uh, she knew the Lord was going to get him through it one way or the other. And um, that's, that's what happens when you have the anchor. And uh, we can look out at the world, we see it's falling apart, and I say, no, it's falling together, exactly like the Bible said it would. So instead of being unstable in my mind, it causes me to be more stable and more sure. I'm more confident than ever that because what God said in Zechariah that's already come to pass, I'm confident that he's going to finish the work that he started. He's got a plan and nobody's going to change it, including the Lucifer and all of his hordes of demons. Nothing's going to hinder the Lord Jesus Christ from establishing his kingdom. It's a done deal. So we hear in Revelation 13, we have detail that we don't even have about the Antichrist's death. All right, he's been conquering for the first three and a half years. If you look at verse um, three, it's a reference to the Antichrist. He says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. Now, I just want you to stop and put this in perspective. November 22nd, 1963, I think, 
was the day JFK was shot. And I was down in Dallas one time, and I had an extra day. And I went to the library. I went up to the very window that um, Oswald shot Kennedy from. I looked down that street, and I walked down that street, and my little sister's uh, daughter was getting married in Virginia that week. So three days later, I was at... um, um, uh, where JFK was buried, Arlington Cemetery. And I was there, and there was the eternal flame. It was just a moment that everybody remembers where they were and what they were doing when JFK was shot in the head, fatal head wound. All right, that's what happens here. Except all of a sudden he comes back to life. And, we've, and it's a, a, the mortal wound. This was a mortal wound. He was killed. And his deadly wound was healed... And the world marveled. This guy was dead and now he's resurrected. It is Jesus. It is the Christ. Only God can come back from the dead. So they worshiped the beast who gave authority. They worshiped the dragon, which is the devil, who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who's like this guy? Who was able to make more war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemy. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. But what does Zechariah tell us? Here it says a fatal head wound. Zechariah tells us he's going to be blind in his right eye. And a, a part of this assassination attempt is going to cause his hand to be withered. So we have more detail than actually given to us. It's much like Psalm 22. That gives us detail of what Jesus went through uh, when he was on the cross. So let's... let's um, Stop there, and I want to go back and make the rest of the study this morning with the time that I have left. I want you to go back to Matthew 27. Remember I told you I was going to come back to it? Because basically what I've given you thus far are prophecies, history that have happened. Some of it's been fulfilled. Some of it is yet unfilled. But now I'd like to get to more of a practical way that the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented. And it's sort of tucked away in a picture form that blows my mind. Uh, in Matthew 27, we find, uh, again, let's go back to it and um, read the part where he's betrayed for the 30 pieces of silver. He brings the money back and the the leaders take the money and say, we can't take it, it's blood money. So they buy a field with it. And um, in verse 7, they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood till this day. And this was prophesied by Zechariah and Jeremiah. Let me quote um, something from Jeremiah at this time and ask this question. What is a potter's field anyway? What is a potter's field? Well, a potter's field is Jeremiah talking about a potter. Again, if you're taking notes, I'm in chapter 18, the first six verses of of Jeremiah. It says, "The, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go to the potter's house. And there I will cause you to hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, 
making something at the wheel. What you do with a, um, a potter's wheel when you're making a pot, for those of you who know, you take your lump of clay, put it on the wheel, it spins, and you, you shape it. And I went to the potter's house, and he was making something at the wheel, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you in my hands, O house of Israel. Now we're taking something that's um, um, a profession, but now it's having a spiritual application. And the potter just becomes an illustration to make a point how God wants his people to respond to him. In Jeremiah's prophecy, God likens himself to the potter. God puts the clay, mankind, on the potter's wheel and attempts to fashion it into the vessel he has in mind. But the clay has to yield to him. The clay that won't yield to him is thrown away into the potter's field. He can't use it. Maybe it breaks on the wheel. And it's not have the right moisture content for whatever reason. It bakes in the kill and it cracks and so. In his backyard, there's all these shattered pieces of vessel. Turn with me to Second Corinthians at this time. Chapter 4, and while you're turning, I'm going to quote Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord took clay, and he shaped it, he molded it, and it had nostrils, And then the Lord breathed into it, breathed into Adam, and he became a living being. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 7, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Then it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What are we? (laughs) We're just a piece of clay that God breathed on. And the point is, who should get the glory? The, the, the earthen vessel? No. That's why the Bible says God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That's why when God does something, the Lord will get the glory and the credit for it and not, and not the, uh, the, uh, the vessel itself. So it's interesting that the price of Christ was 30 pieces of silver, And those priests took the coins. They were very pious about using the price of blood for religious purposes. And they bought the potter's field as a burial place for the poor. 
The Lord Jesus Christ has been working in the potter's field for a long, long time. He purchased it, but he didn't purchase it for 30 pieces of silver. He paid the full price, far more than any amount of silver and gold. Most precious commodity in the universe is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good place for an amen. There's nothing more valuable. It's the only thing that can heal the only disease that's incurable. It's called sin. There's only one remedy for sin. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb who lived the perfect life. He paid the price so that we might buy this old, he might buy this old world with you where you and I live, a world filled with the broken lives of mankind, broken physically, broken mentally, broken morally, broken spiritually. The great potter, the Lord Jesus, takes the clay that was thrown away, puts it on the wheel of circumstance, and shapes it into a vessel of honor. We are the clay, he is the potter, and even these days of his rejection, he is working in the potter's field. What's your point, Dwight? My point, gang, is uh, we are the broken vessels out in the field. How many of us here, when he came to the Lord, were broken, shattered, no hope? Nothing can fix me because this, this machine is run down and it's broken. And it's good for nothing. Throw it away. It's meaningless. I have a closing question as we begin um, to wind this up. You may be a person who doesn't know Christ yet, whose life is broken, you feel discarded. What's, what's the use? Really not good for anything. Well, I have good news for you. You can be made brand new. You can be put back on the potter's wheel if you're pliable, if you won't harden your heart to his voice when he calls. And he will cause you to be born again. And he'll take this vessel, and he has a purpose that he has for you. And um, the question is, will you be pliable in the Lord's hand? Will you receive him as your Lord and Savior and then allow him to mold you and shape you into the image that he has in store for you. Now, last verse we're going to turn to is Second Timothy chapter 2. And it gets down to the character that the Lord wants us to be. Now I'm preaching to the crowd. Now I'm preaching to those who, who know the Lord. But my question is, have you been molded and and fashioned into what he wants you to be? Into a gentle servant? If you pick it up in verse, chapter 2, 2 Timothy, pick it up in verse 20. It says, but a great house, and in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Hmm, clay. Some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And then it says, flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, 
with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Now we're hitting where the rubber meets the road for the Christian life. Uh, We're to avoid arguments or things that don't lead to any really encouragement, but they generate strife. It says in verse 24, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Wow. But be gentle to all, able to teach and be patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. There are people that you know that are in opposition, that don't like you (laughs) because you're one of them people. And um, when you get together, it can be argument time or divisive time. He says, but when that happens, don't lose your cool. Let them see the peace of the Lord in you rather than getting into a big debate and argument. Why do I say that? I'm not. It says so in verse 25. In humility, correct those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, they're watching you. Why would I become a Christian? Because look at me. I got peace. You have peace? You want to fight? I don't want to fight. You know? That's all over with. That's part of the flesh. That's part of the old life. And God perhaps will get, grant them repentance. What does that mean? That they look at you and they go, wow, I wish I had what you had. Do people think of you that way? Do they look at you that way? Do they say, wow, I wish I had what I remember running into my first Jesus freak person. And um, I had long hair and a beard at the time. I thought I was the only one on the planet. And the Shiloh House moved to Oshkosh, Wisconsin. It was 72, something like that. And of all places, I was working in, in a crutch factory. How's that for a setup? <laughs> and um, I, would, I would bring my Bible to, to work every day, but nobody did that. I mean, nobody did that. And plus, I didn't look. I, I was just, just an ex, ex-hippie who got saved. And all of a sudden, I see this guy with black hair down to here, and I'm man, he, he was carrying one of these living room Bibles that you put on your coffee table. And he had a Jesus grin from here to here. And I thought, oh my goodness, there's two of us. His name was David Black. And he was the first besides myself that looked like myself. And we, we had lunch together and that's how I got turned on to um, the house communal houses back in the early 70s. It goes on to say, uh, verse twenty-six, that some may come to, that they may come to know the, the truth, that they may come to their senses. Boy, that's a great verse. That they might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. There's a war going on for the souls of men, but when people look at us. Have we been molded and shaped into a gentle servant or one that likes to get into a debate and argue your point of view until uh, you win your debate or argument? So um, the song that uh, the worship team sang earlier, heartaches, broken people, ruined lives are why he died at Calvary. The potter's field is a picture it's a picture that was bought for 30 pieces of silver. That's what 
Judas betrayed him for. But in it is this whole story of who you and I are in light of this. And I'll close with something that before I was a Christian, I was 17 years old. That was like 20 years ago, I think. And um, I was living in Oshkosh again. I've always loved music. And there was this group called the American Breed. And they had, a, they had a song called Bend Me, Shape Me. And some of you guys over 60 know who I am. All, all you millennials don't have a clue what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> but I love this song. And um, I heard they were playing in Menasha at a place called The Illusion. And um, I had to see this group because I love this song called Bend Me, Shape Me. Any way you want to, as long as you love me, it's okay. And I went back and I actually found it on YouTube yesterday. And I forgot, this really was a good song. And the lyrics of it is really the context. I don't usually use secular songs to make a spiritual point, but in this case I will. Because I identify it as long as I love you. As long as you love me. Lord, here I am. Bend me. Shape me. Do with me whatever you want to. I want to be that pliable piece of clay in your hands. As long as you love me. And so good news is he does love me. And um, he has a purpose and a plan. We're on the potter's wheel. Getting spun around day by day. And um, our attitude should be just like the old song. Lord, you can bend me, shape me any way you want to. As long as you love me, it's all right. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And we get blown away as we see the accuracy of your word and how great of a God you are that can only predict things before they happen. And as we watch them unfold, Lord, what it brings to us is a soundness of heart and mind in a very unstable world. And for that, Jesus, we say thank you. We know we have a lot of rough edges still to be worked on. We know we're not what we should be. But after the study this morning, Lord, we see that your desire is like the Lord told Jeremiah, that he is the potter and we're the clay. And um, Lord, allow our hearts to be in a place to be molded and shaped by you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.